Recovery Elevator, episode 59. It felt like, you know, a ton of bricks had been lifted from my shoulders. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for one year, six months, and three weeks. On today's podcast, we've got Molly. She's 30 years old, she's getting married this summer, and she's been sober for almost a month. Also on today's podcast, we've got my brother. Yep, my brother Mark. He's not an alcoholic, he's a normal drinker. But I wanted to get his point of view of what it was like to try to read between the lines, to try to decipher what's really going on with an alcoholic. These are the times when I was an alcoholic but didn't want to admit it to myself. Outside looking in, you're like, is Paul depressed? Is he anxious? Did a girl decline a date request? Does he have an upset tummy? I expected my brother to read my mind, which is an impossible task to ask out of anybody. I wouldn't admit this to my brother during the interview, but he's kind of my hero. He's one of the coolest guys I've ever met, and I have this life saying, WWMD, that would what would Mark do in this current situation? I always ask myself that when I find myself in situations where I really need to think things through. And the idea for this topic actually came from my brother because he was saying, like, look, there was no way that we were supposed to know about this stuff that you were going through. We had no idea. So let's go ahead and hear from Mark. Mark, how you doing? Hey, Pablo. How's it going? Pretty good. Thanks for joining me. And I've got Mark on the podcast today to explain his side of the story about when there were so many times when I was an alcoholic, still am. When I was like screaming internally for help and I thought it was so clear of what I needed, but I never said a word. And I just want to chat with you about that because my expectations of you were completely unrealistic, completely false, thinking that you could read my mind and you were supposed to say something like, well, Paul, hey, I I think you're an alcoholic. Let's chat about this. When like, why would you get that idea? Because I'm doing my best to hide it. Does this make any sense, Mark? Yep, it makes perfect sense. And I can now say it finally makes sense after years of difficulties, kind of watching you struggle down that path and, you know, us finally being able to come into uh, into your world and really understand what was going on and, you know, finally being able to feel like we can actually provide you some semblance of help. Now, listeners, Mark is a normal drinker, as far as I know, but he does know who he can go to within the family if he if he does have issues moving forward. So he's a normal drinker. He's my older brother by about three years. He lives in Seattle. I live in Montana. And Mark, for your information, I have learned through some surveys and just average guess to the emails that I get, probably 20 to 30% of the people who listen to this podcast are normal drinkers. So there are people listening on both sides of the street that are like, wait, okay, there's definitely some takeaways here. And so I'm going to talk about some moments where in the past, I'm like, Mark, how could you not get these like obvious signals that I'm sending you? Because Mark, you pole vaulted 14 feet, six inches in high school. I just assumed you could read my mind, but I was wrong, right? Absolutely. I thought I could conquer the world with pole vaulting, but I was a little wrong on that. And we'll get right into the first one here. There was a time when you and all your friends came out for some spring skiing in Seattle when I was still living at home at the uh, young age of 26. Thanks, mom and dad, for that. Do you remember what I'm talking about? I sure do. And your friends are awesome. I still, I'm friends with those people as well. You're getting married on June 5th. Congratulations to a wonderful Canadian woman named Jen. Your friends are great. And after they left that trip to say thank you, what would you get 
uh, you know, usually get a, as a gift for somebody who's in their mid-20s living at home. It's, it wasn't a Bed Bath & Beyond gift card. It was a bottle of really nice tequila. Do you remember that? Absolutely. You loved tequila at the time. Well, I probably still love tequila now as well, but, uh, you know, just, just a different take on it. Yeah, but I remember when you guys left, you know, your, your, all your friends were in the kitchen area, and you're like, hey, Paul, thank you so much for hosting. Um, we got you this nice bottle of tequila, and it wasn't, you know, like, well tequila. It was very nice tequila. And internally, I'm like, fudge, I thank you, but no thanks. And I had to put on this front and this face, and I'm like, oh, thank you so much. Like, And I was struggling so bad. Like, the last thing I needed was a bottle of tequila. And I actually remember dumping about half of that bottle out like two nights later because, you know, I had a couple sips, then a shot, and then it turned into like drinking half the bottle in one sitting. The next night I just dumped it out. But uh, was there any behavior on my face that indicated that I didn't want that bottle? <laughs> no. And if there was, I probably took it to mean that you were just upset that your bigger brother was going home to Seattle and you were going to miss him. Well, we had some good times when we both lived at home. Don't forget, Mark, you also lived at home in your late 20s, dude. <laughs> One of the best times of my life. I can say that now. <laughs> yeah, we did play a lot of beer pong. Yeah, that was fun. So and on that time there, yeah, it was like a week I just held this resentment. And I was like, God darn it, Mark. Like, why? How could you do this to me? I'm trying my hardest to you figure out what the hell's going on with this. Like, why could you do this to me? And you had no idea, right? Yep, absolutely. No idea. I mean, it's it's so interesting to hear your take on the scenario now, much like many other circumstances that we experienced back in the past where your perception was one thing and mine was another. And looking back on that, you know, it's a giant puzzle piece or it's a giant puzzle where all the pieces are now kind of fit together. And I get it. And I know that you get it as well. And when I kind of think back on that, I also recall from, I believe, your fifth episode from one of my uh, best friends, Elliot Pemberton, who was on your pod podcast, you know, he said something that I think kind of took that last puzzle piece in my mind and really put everything together and um, explained why in those early days there was such a disconnect between us. And the thing that Elliot said that made so much sense was just nobody can call you or nobody can call anybody for that matter an alcoholic except that person themselves. And looking back on several circumstances, you know, like what you just described, I can definitely see where, yeah, there was a definite disconnect. But in my mind, there wasn't a concern because I knew you to be, a, you know, a, a younger brother who we did live at home together and we had a couple of fun nights playing beer pong. And although you were maybe going through some other struggles, I never thought maybe this is alcoholism and maybe this is a larger problem that I should be thinking about because that idea just never popped into my mind. And it wasn't until years later that you had the strength and courage to, number one, admit that to yourself, but then even probably more, even more difficult, admit that to your friends and family that it all of a sudden made sense. And I was able to kind of, you know, look at those similar scenarios moving forward with a completely different perspective and mindset. Hmm. That's great takeaway. And, and the disconnect there's two reasons why. Number one, the alcohol, and number two, the hundreds of atomic wedgies that you gave me up till about the age of 27. That's half of what you deserved. Well, that's uh, you know still out to the jury. But there's two other ones I want to talk to you about. The first one is okay. I had left Spain. This is like 2006. I had left Spain. Be like, look, I am done. I am not going back there. I'm killing myself. 
And then mom, she's like, well, well, Mark and his girlfriend are going to go out to Spain. They want to, they want you to show them around. You got to get back out there. And I pulled myself up by the bootstraps, you know, mentally made a couple plans, how I could drink like a normal person, went back out to Spain and met you and your girlfriend at that time. And I was sober. Well, as you guys, you know, I tried to get a 30 days of sobriety and I got like 28 days out of 30. But again, you probably had no idea that I was like, damn it, I have to go back there. Like outside looking in, you're like, what, you're going to go hang out with your brother in Spain and his girlfriend and drive to like Cadiz and stuff. Did you have any idea about that as well? Well, I mean, at the time, I know it was a very difficult scenario for you. And before we realized what the true culprit was of alcoholism, there were any number of ideas that were swirling through your mind, through our minds of just general anxiety, maybe depression of, you know, being in a foreign country or away from your home, you know, whatever it was, we nobody ever really kind of perceived it to be a problem with alcoholism because, well, you owned a bar. <laughs> and obviously looking back, we probably could have put those puzzle pieces together. But again, nobody can claim that you're an alcoholic except for yourself. And so no, nobody extended that far. And from the outside looking in, you were living the lifestyle that most people could only dream. And so it was easy for myself and others around you to probably say, come on, Paul, what's the issue? Yeah, you're probably a little homesick or maybe, you know, things, maybe the bar's not going as well as you thought, but come on, man, for God's sakes, you live in Spain, get back out there and live this utopian, idealized lifestyle that every young American would love to do. What's the problem? And yeah, we were absolutely guilty of that mindset, but I, I, I guess I, you know, can't really use the term guilty because at the time we just didn't understand. And had we known at the time kind of really what you were facing, it would have been a completely different scenario. Mark, and these are resentments that you shouldn't be guilty for because they shouldn't be resentments in the first place. And like you said, I'm the only one that could say I'm an alcoholic. Like I went back to Spain and the words that never came out of my mouth were like, hey, mom, Mark, dad, everybody, I'm an alcoholic. I can't go back there. I'm literally physically killing myself. I can't do it. Of course, I was like, eh, every excuse in the book. Um, but I have a confession to make as well. On the same trip, you and I, we, we drove back from Cadiz, C-A-D-I-Z. So Cadiz, it's like the spring carnival. It was actually a pretty sweet night. We both remember that, right? Yep. <laughs> and we drove back in the fog like at 6 a.m. And I was driving and I was sober-ish. And the confession is I think you saw me drink a little bit of vodka. That was one of the two days that I didn't make 30 days of sobriety. But on the way back, we stopped at a gas station. And on that long drive back in the fog, it was a beautiful drive. Like I was just uncomfortable behind the steering wheel feeling the feelings. And I stopped in that gas station. It, did you have any idea I was chugging beers in the bathroom at about 7.42 a.m.? <laughs> well, granted, how we felt after that evening the night before in Cadiz, I wouldn't have noticed if the Pope drove by. But no, I had absolutely no idea that you were in the bathroom in the, in the gas station drinking. So that is something I've, I've got to apologize for, too, is if you if you really – externalize yourself and just look at it for what it is. I'm driving my brother and his girlfriend across the southern part of Spain and I'm hiding drinking and driving. So I I feel terrible. I need to apologize for putting you two in that situation. Well, <laughs> you know, y years go by and past transgressions, I suppose we can look at those and say, boy, we were young and stupid. Yeah, that was a fun night though too. Um, okay. Fast forward to December 24th, 2009. I am an alcoholic at that point, still not admitting it to myself. 
And I had, uh, I tried like a new antidepressant. I went to see a psychologist and there, you know, of course I didn't tell him alcohol was a problem. So I went on Wellbutrin and it just backfired. Like literally that alcohol and Wellbutrin was absolutely terrible. And do you remember that when mom called you and you're like, Hey, can you go check on Paul? He's like disappeared for a day. And do you remember coming to my apartment near the UW district that day? Uh, very clearly. Yeah. Okay. And again, you stop by and I'm just like, look, Mark, everything's going to be fine. Like I'm good. You're like, no, Paul, what's really going on? And I'm an alcoholic, never came out of my mouth. And the next day, this is where the resentment comes. And it's like, come on, like, how could you do this? But in reality, you weren't doing anything because I didn't tell you anything. And do you remember that the outfits we were wearing the next day? So I had to dress up as Santa Claus and you two were elves. And we weren't just driving like down a street. We were traveling from Seattle to Colorado in international airports. Like I'm Santa Claus walking through the Denver International Airport. And like the day before I'm hungover and I'm like, God, what? you know, and six days later, it was January 1st when I started my two and a half years of sobriety. But you know, what, what was going on with, with you guys that day? Obviously, you had no idea um, I'm an alcoholic. And the point of this call is like not to get an apology. I'm not saying like, Mark, will you please apologize for that? Because it's nothing to apologize for. You had no idea. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we did look like we had just come off the shift at the mall. You know, it was Santa and the elves going through the airports and it was a hysterical moment. People were laughing. And, you know, I, I, I the, the thing about that that I actually do recall is looking at pictures that our mom had taken of us when we were at the airport and you could so clearly see in your eyes just just the, the, the pain and the anguish of, of something going on that, again, at the time, we just kind of chalked up to, you know, he's in between jobs. He kind of started a new program at the University of Washington. He's, you know, getting his feet underneath him in Seattle. Like, there's a lot going on. And so it's just anxiety and, you know, all this other stuff. But, again, never in our minds, to, at least in my mind, I can only speak for myself, Never in my mind did I think to pinpoint it to alcoholism. <laughs> and and again, looking back on that, it's a puzzle piece that you put together once every you know, once everything is said and done, that you just say, I wish I had have known at that time because things would have been very different. You two looked fantastic in your elf costumes. Me, however, like you said in the photo, I looked like Billy Bob Thornton in Bad Santa. I was hurting <laughs> in every way possible. And let's fast forward to actually May of 2014. This is when the ball starts moving forward. I had been drinking on a Lake Powell trip, which I believe you know now, um, but nobody knew that I was drinking on, on this trip. And then early on like the fifth day, I went into mom and dad's houseboat chambers, shall we say. And I was like, hey, mom, dad, it's like 6.58 a.m. I've been drinking a lot. And we had that conversation, the three of us. And then later that day, you and I were in the bottom of the speedboat. And you remember the conversation we had? Yep. Very, again, very clearly. Yep. Yeah. What, what do you remember for that? I, you know, it, it, it began like similar conversations we had had in the past, but then, you know, you did kind of drop what in, in the instant was the bombshell of the word alcoholic and alcoholism. But it's amazing how in, instantly that the, the house of cards of your beliefs of what might be going on with somebody immediately dissolves and you just in your mind say absolutely that's it and you know it's almost like a, a a new point in time begins where you can say all right we now understand this we now kind of know what's going on and hopefully we can you know appropriately and effectively work together to to help in any way that we can so it was 
you know, not not, not to speak in hyperbole, but, but a defining moment and one that I was super proud that you were able to do and one that, you know, we instantly realized kind of, you know, what, what, what was really going on and kind of what you had ahead of you to deal with. Man, and early in the day when I told mom and dad, I didn't use the word alcoholic. I basically told him I was an alcoholic and every other word besides alcoholic. And with you, I remember in the bottom of the boat, it just came out. I'm like, dude, like I'm, I'm an, I'm an, I'm, I'm an, uh, Al, 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 Alka Seltzer. Um, I'm an alcoholic, damn it. And it was hard, but your reaction is, you're a loving brother, and your reaction is probably what the way most loving family members would react. But for us on this side, we we imagine for some reason, like we tell our brother. Um, that or that I'm an alcoholic and you're just like later dude I'm gonna go uh sit on the front of the boat with the drinkers and you can sit down here but like that would never happen so thank you for your your reaction I gotta I gotta say what was it like for you hearing that your younger brother is an alcoholic well like I said at that moment it just it all kind of fell into place you know it wasn't a surprise I mean and I have to admit as well that this happened with you know my other friend Elliot who's been on on your podcast that when he he told me that I immediately kind of shuffled through ten years of memories and it all kind of came into place of like aha uh-huh, yeah I, I I can now see that now that you've taken that step to admit that to yourself and to others it kind of makes sense and so it wasn't like a you know a big surprise or anything that was like difficult to fathom or deal with. There, there was a short, very short amount of time where it was almost kind of like, ah, oh, this is just a phase, he'll get over it. But that sentiment very quickly evaporated. And it just, you know, part of it became easier in the sense of we kind of knew what you were dealing with and, you know, again, how better we could help. But it also, I, I, I think the difficulty of it was more wishing that we had have known earlier. Because I can only imagine you know, the pain and anguish that you went through the preceding two years, three years. I mean, I'll never know how long this went on from the time when you essentially admitted it. Don't to forget yourself. Santa Claus in the airport. Yeah, that probably could have been the moment. We'll pull that picture up. We could <laughs> probably put that on the podcast. People we will probably see put that photo on the moment. podcast. Okay, that, that, that'll be the uh, episode photo. And so, yeah, I, I can only imagine the pain and anguish you were feeling for those two years where you were just in your mind saying, come on, people. I'm your son. I'm your brother. How how do you not understand what's going on? But that false expectation of just hoping and wishing that people would just magically understand what you're going through will never materialize. And so until you actually had the courage and the strength to admit that, there was going to be that disconnect. And that's why I'm so happy that you kind of, you know, came around that corner and finally were able to do that with us. And after doing this now 60 interviews with alcoholics and people, I know there's a very similar journey to sobriety. And I took some very monumental steps on that Lake Powell trip with you guys. Little did I know I was creating accountability. And you've heard me say that word so many times because I think it is critical in recovery. I was creating accountability and my recovery network. Even if my recovery network was only boosted by three people, you my mom and my dad, three normal drinkers. It's still three people that know what's going on and can help create accountability, ask about me, check up with me. And then let's fast forward to July of 2015. What you did would not have happened if I hadn't had that conversation with you in a boat. And what happened is I got a DUI driving to work in July 2015. 
And then I spent the night in a suicide-proof jail cell. That was fun. Not quite as bad as a Santa moment. But the next morning, when I when I checked out, the police officer was like, "Yeah, your brother Mark's here." I'm like, "My brother Mark? He lives in Seattle." He's like, "No, yeah, he's here." And I mean, just like my eyes started to well up and tear up, um, because that's what family does. And you dropped everything you did. You got on an airplane, obviously, flew out at a time when I really needed you, and you were there. But you actually did read between the lines this time because. There wasn't really like a hard line to read between because I told you I was an alcoholic. Do you remember that moment? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of those, you know, you hope the, the the bottom of the barrel moments that you're right. It's not even a decision or a question. It's just you drop what you're doing. You get on the plane, you go and you you just tackle that bull by the horns. And I remember you walking around the corner at the police station when you first saw me. I mean, I could see that you were shocked, surprised, but also just you know, I, I, I think happy that I was there. I was very happy. Yeah. And that was, you know, I mean, considering the circumstances, I thought a very good week. I, I was glad to be there with you. I was glad to, you know, work remotely and just kind of, you know, it, it, be able to continue to live life with you there. Almost kind of like the old days, you know, living together as a family. Yeah, you did give me a wedgie that week, too. Could have done without that. You apparently forgot the second one, but we'll, we'll, we'll skip over that. <laughs> and... I don't know this for certain, but I'm pretty sure had I not had that conversation with Mark in the bottom of that boat, this podcast recording right now would not be happening because while I was in the jail cell rolling around in my like one inch foam vest, I was contemplating, man, I don't even know if I'm going to tell mom and dad. I'm not, I don't even know if I'm going to tell my brother. I'm a legal adult that was 32 years old at that point. I don't need to tell people about this. I was honestly contemplating getting out of that jail cell and just keeping that one under wraps. But you came out at a time when I needed my family, I needed my recovery network, my support system more than any other time in the entire world. You guys were there. So I got to say thank you for that. And there's no coincidence that my sobriety date is less than actually about five weeks after that. I still had to go down my journey a little bit further, but it was pretty close. And you know, Mark, like this was actually your idea because it's so confusing. Am I right? Like how confusing is the alcoholism thing? Like reading body languages and and deciphering what we really mean. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of why I suggested to you that we do this episode. So, you know, like you said, the the, the normal drinkers or non-drinkers, I don't know how you want to refer to them alike with the alcoholics who are part of your community can think and understand, you know, how that disconnect happens, how false expectations from one person to the other can, you know, mire you in pain and, you know, further pain and anguish. And it just, it really takes that courage and that step to admit really what's going on for everybody to move forward together and not only provide that support, but like you said, provide that accountability. And it's just, you know, looking back, I mean, you you can clearly define you know, segments of time in our relationship where it was great growing up, not difficult between us or anything when, when you were struggling yourself, but difficult in the sense that we just wanted to help. We could see you hurting and feeling helpless to do anything to now, you know, we're all in this together. So I'm going to ask you, what advice can you give to two groups of people? Number one, the alcoholic who's struggling. And then number two, what advice can you give to somebody who was in your shoes three, four years ago when you're like, look, I think this is the issue, but I'm not really sure. So the normal drinker advice and then the advice to the drinker. Yeah, I I suppose the advice 
to the drinker would be, even though it's so clear and plainly obvious to you what's going on and you know what your, what your struggles are, it's not to the people around you until you have that conversation. And the, the expectations that you probably hold of them to help and support in an environment where they don't know what they're supposed to help and support with is just not viable. It's not realistic. And you're probably going to be met with you know, disappointment and those expectations not being met. And until you can really, you know, first admit to yourself, as Paul, you've said, as my friend Elliot said, admit to yourself the struggles that you're going through and find a time when you feel it's safe to admit to those around you. But just know that in that interim time period, it's going to be difficult because the people around you just won't understand. They, they, you know, won't fully grasp what you're dealing and struggling with until you let them in. And then, yeah, to, to you know, as you, as you call them, the normal drinkers, you know, who are, has a family member or a friend struggling with alcoholism or in our scenario, you know, has a friend struggling that might be alcoholism. You know, it's difficult to give them advice because it still it could be anything, you know, but keep your mind open to the various possibilities and don't try and you know, peg somebody with alcoholism, maybe that's not what's going on. Maybe they are using drinking as an outlet, but it could be anxiety. It could be depression. And maybe it's not that substance abuse, but be open to, you know, any possibility and listening to them, but let them make their own conclusions and make sure that they know that they are in a safe place with you should they ever decide to, you know, come out and admit that. Great advice and mark i've been sober for almost uh 19 or one year yeah one year six months and three weeks so almost 19 months and we've got your bachelor party coming up i'm cured right (laughs) yep we've got a a detox chamber just for you to, to stay in the whole weekend yes and i've also learned that this doesn't go away i was an alcoholic september 7th 2014 and i'm an alcoholic on march 29th 2016 but people know now, and I still struggle with uh, actually expecting you, Mark, to read my mind, even though we're having this podcast episode. I'm like, Mark, you got the lead role in Pirates of Penzance in eighth grade. Why can't you read my freaking mind, man? Like, it's just, it's not realistic. And I still struggle with that today. And it's not like we have this conversation, it's all good. There will be moments in the future where I'll have to be like, hey, Mark, I just want to let you know this situation is something that I'm going to have to you know, be careful with moving forward. There might be some trepidation if I just leave the situation. This is what's going on because I can't, I can't expect you to fully grasp that. Are you, you understand what I'm saying? Uh, yep. It's, a, it's an ongoing battle. And I think if I went to Seattle and said, hey, Mark, look, um, could you remove the wine bottles and all those bottles? You'd do that in a heartbeat. And I know you would, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I know, you know, your friends, parents, everybody else would do that. It's just the, the, the simple task of a request because everybody's probably struggling in a different way and they, they need different things. And so just kind of letting us know, like, what would help you specifically? It's the, the easiest request for us to comply with. Love it. Mark, thank you so much for for hanging out with me. I appreciate it. We're going to have a great time at the bachelor party. Actually, Elliot, Mark's other very good friend. One of his best friends is going to be there. He's been on the podcast twice. 
We're going to plan on recording the value bombs in person in video. That stuff will be up there. And I'm pretty sure we can find that bad Santa video where Mark and his girlfriend are looking pretty good. And then me, just a dumpy drunk Santa in the Denver International Airport. Uh, We can probably find that. Put that on the blog post. Mark, yeah, I just got to say thank you, man. Uh, Not everybody is as lucky as me to have such supporting family members and that cast around them. Because we can't do this alone. We can't do it without other alcoholics helping us. It's very difficult doing it without a supportive family. So thank you, Mark. You got it, man. And I got to say, I'm proud of you for what you've been able to accomplish. And especially this recovery elevator community. It's just amazing to see the the strides that that you've been able to achieve with, you know, this, the community, your sobriety, the 19 months. I mean, coming up upon two years, it's, it's amazing. And congratulations. Can you promise me as long as I stay sober, there will be no more atomic wedgies? (laughs) Don't forget the knuckle sandwiches. And I, uh, Uh, I know. And I just gotta, you know, get, get, get my $5 for mom for hanging out with you on this podcast episode. Damn it, mom. All right. Okay. Well, anyways, Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. All right, Pablo. See ya. So if you're struggling with alcohol, you've got a loved one or best friend, and you're wondering why the hell they haven't intervened yet, well, it's probably because you haven't told them. You haven't been honest with them, but maybe it's because you haven't been honest with yourself first. You know, my brother says that in the interview, but there were times like I didn't know what to come out about. I'm lying to doctors. I'm lying to myself. So there is that journey into sobriety where once we get honest with ourselves, then we can stop making it so hard for our loved ones. Well, now let's hear from our second interviewee, Molly. Molly, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much for asking. Molly, how long have you been sober? Today marks 23 days. Nice. I love it. And Molly, a little over an hour ago, I just finished an interview with Matt, who's been sober for over five years, and I'm going to test the theory that we are all the same. Episode 53 was terminal uniqueness. And after interviewing 55 alcoholics up to this moment, including myself, we're all the same. Of course, we've got some differences in our stories. You're in San Diego. I'm in freezing cold Montana. But I cannot wait, even though you've got 23 days of sobriety, to hear the similarities between you and Matt, who's got five years of sobriety. But 23 days of sobriety, that's not chump change. I want you to be proud of that. How does it feel to have 23 days? It's great. I actually told my boss at work yesterday that I was at 22 days. Yeah. uh, And she said, oh, my gosh, uh, I can't even string a day together. Wow. And Did you, were you like, well, moments. pull up a chair. Let's, let's chat. Yeah. Was she yeah. talking about coffee, gummy bears, like one day together or what? Of, of not drinking. That's amazing. And then you probably instantly got to a new deeper level of connection with your boss. That's really cool. Yeah. And she just, you know, made me feel like 23 days was really something that was a huge accomplishment. So I, I really appreciated that discussion. Yeah. And Molly, before we get further into this interview, tell listeners a little bit about yourself. And I'm, I'm personally, am curious, maybe give us a little bit of background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, how old you are, are you married? Do you have a family? Do you have kids? And what do you like to do for fun? All right. Well, I am 30 years old. I live in San Diego, about a mile away from the beach. So life is pretty good in that regard. I am getting married this summer. I'm going to Thailand on my honeymoon. Congratulations. So- Thank you. Yeah, really excited about that. And, you know, I'm I'm only in 23 days into my sobriety, so I'm sort of still figuring out what I like to do for fun. That doesn't include boozing or doing drugs. 
But, you know, I'm doing a lot of yoga and meditation and reading and trying to do a lot of things to take care of myself and to, like, um, I guess, show love to myself, as corny as that sounds. And so we'll see where that goes. Nice. And talk about the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. When did your elevator hit its bottom and you decide to get off? Was that 23 days ago or was it a series of events leading up to your sobriety day 23 days ago? Well, it definitely was a series of events leading up to it. But the 23 days ago was when I finally decided that I had had enough. You know, alcoholism, as you've said multiple times, is a progressive disease. And I've always been a big drinker. I just, I, I clung to that party girl moniker, you know, like I was just a party girl. And I kind of look innocent and young. So when people meet me, they make a lot of assumptions about me. And so partying and getting crazy and wild was sort of my way of rebelling against that and saying like, oh, you don't really know me like you think you do. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. I got you. Yeah. So I went to this, a Super Bowl party, the weekend of the Super Bowl, obviously. And I decided that I was going to bring a bottle of wine and that was all I was going to drink because I'm, I've sort of, you know, had been trying to limit myself and restricting myself as alcoholics do. And for most people, a bottle of wine is a lot of alcohol, but for me, it's not um, that much. So I go and of course, you know, as soon as I have my first glass of wine, I can't, you know, switch off that, um, that switch that goes off in my brain that makes me want to drink more. So I ended up drinking that whole bottle of wine and like 10 beers and then doing a bunch of drugs. And I, you know, sat in my desk chair the next morning and asked myself, you know, how many more mornings am I going to feel ashamed of myself? How many more mornings am I going to come into work feeling like absolute shit, hating my life, wondering, you know, what I'm doing with myself? You know, like I'm so sick of feeling this way. And something that had happened a few weeks earlier kind of popped in my mind. I had, I had gone to a doctor. I'd gone to uh, an intake uh, at a psychiatric part of the hospital just to try to see a counselor because for the first time in my life, I've been dealing with a lot of depression and anxiety brought on mostly by my um, alcohol abuse. And she asked me, you know, how often do you drink? And for the first time in my life, I decided to be honest. And I, I have to believe that it was like that inner voice in my head, you know, that was telling me to tell the truth. And I did. And she said, I think you need to see our substance abuse department and talk about getting into some um, outpatient, you know, treatment for that. And so, you know, that Monday morning after the Super Bowl, her words were ringing in my head and I picked up the, the phone and I made the call. Listeners, there were about five to six, seven, eight value bombs right there. I jotted down some quick notes and there's a part of there where you said, as of lately, I've been struggling with anxiety, depression because of, and I'm like, don't say wedding, don't say wedding, don't say wedding. <laughs> And you didn't say wedding because there's a time in all of our lives when you're like, you know what? I, I think I'm drinking a lot because I'm studying for the bar or I'm about to graduate college or, or, you know, we're going to buy a house or my job is stressful. It's never like I'm drinking a lot because I'm an alcoholic. It, it's just, that's, that was awesome. I was scared I was going to hear wedding, but you just went right into it. You're like, it's, it's my drinking. So kudos to you on that one. And there was another value bomb in there with you were just sick and tired of being sick and tired. You woke up one day and you got honest with yourself that Monday morning. I was almost sitting in that chair with you because I've been in that chair so many times. What do you think was different from that morning to you know the morning before or the, or the other mornings? 
I think that it just had happened so many times. It felt like the one millionth time that I had been saying that, like I'm on a merry-go-round that I can't get off of. And and also I would say that, you know, little whisper in the back of my head um, started to grow louder and louder over the, you know, subsequent few months and few weeks prior to that, um, that interaction with the doctor and, you know, friends and family sort of saying that they were concerned. And the more of these things happened, you know, the more my mind was opening up to the idea of like, yes, I'm an alcoholic. Yes, I have a problem. Like if I don't change something, I'm going to ruin my life. And so, yeah, that that's what did it. Back it up to the Super Bowl day. Fantastic day. I'm a big Broncos fan. So there was a big, great day for me. Tell me about how your addiction convinced you, and I love this, by the way, said, Molly, we're only going to bring a bottle of wine. It might be like <laughs> the liter size wine or the 1.5 liter size wine, but that's all we're going to drink today. And, and there's people who are like, I'll go to Vegas and I'm only going to drink a bottle of wine the whole weekend. But I love it. how You might be an alcoholic if you go to a Super Bowl party and you say you're only going to drink one bottle of wine. Tell me what your <laughs> thinking was and, why, and like how you believed it was going to be different that time. I don't know if I truly actually believed that it would be different, but you know, my I was with my fiance and he's a normal drinker. And that was going to be had, one of my questions later, so I'm glad we got. Yeah, that. yeah, he had been really, you know, he, he's been really concerned. In fact, you know, we've been together several years and we don't actually even fight. The only time that we've ever had arguments or tiffs or anything has been related to my substance abuse, whether that be drugs or alcohol. And, you know, I just felt like I don't want to make an ass out of myself again. I don't want to, you know, these are good friends. I don't want to be that jerk, you know, who's blacking out like I always do. Like, I don't want to embarrass him. Like, I don't want to make him upset. And that's, you know, that was a big reason. And also because this little, you know, the little whisper in my head was like, you don't need that much to drink. You really don't need, you know, two bottles of wine and seven beers. Like, (laughs) you know, so limit it. And, and so I thought, well, this, this bottle of wine, you know, really isn't that much. So <laughs> I can stick to that. And, you know, as, as you know, that never ends up happening. Yeah. And talk to me about your drinking habits leading up to before that. Were you a bottle of a wine a night? Did you ever have any rules in place? Like no drinking before five? Yeah. What were your drinking patterns like? Oh, gosh. I mean, yeah, I did try to restrict myself. You know, for a while, I would say, well, uh, you know, I'm a working professional. I have to be in an office from eight to five every day. So I would say, you know, I'm not going to drink during the week this week, but I'd always end up drinking during the week. And sometimes when I would say that, I'd end up drinking two bottles of wine by myself on the couch on a Wednesday and, you know, come in the next day with a raging, you know, wine hangover and the shakes. I would drink heavily on the weekends. So like basically three, like a three day bender kind of a situation of drugs and alcohol. And um, I'd start to drink as soon as I would wake up in the morning. And so after a little while of doing that, you know, I would say like, wait until noon or wait until 2pm to start day drinking on your, you know, Sunday fun day, or don't drink dark liquors, don't take shots, you know, so those are the sort of the ways that I would try to self regulate. Sure. And talk to me about that day, Monday morning, you're sitting there in your chair going like, all right, I am so sick and tired of this. This is exhausting. What was it like day one, day two, day three? I'm curious. How'd you do it? I was scared shitless, to be honest. And I still am. I mean, I was sitting in my desk chair, literally like terrible signs of alcohol withdrawal, 
you know, struggling through that. I had to be on a conference call at 10 a.m. and I couldn't even string a sentence together. You know, my brain was just so out of whack. And I'm sitting there like crying silently to myself. And I just, you know, I decided at that point, I, I called up the, um, the outpatient treatment program. I got an appointment for the following Friday. And I was able to, you know, abstain from drinking on my own until that Friday. I had that appointment and the counselor said to the, for the first time ever, looked at me in my eyes and said, you are an alcoholic. Wow. And, and what was that like when she said that? I just, I mean, I just nodded my head because I knew he was right. And, you know, I have, I can't even count how many family members, you know, ancestors have been alcoholics. And, you know, he said all of the signs that you're telling me, you know, it, it are signs of late stage alcoholism. And if this doesn't work, you're going to have to go to rehab. And it was the first time, you know, I really let myself accept that. And the first time I ever said out loud that I was an alcoholic and the fear of like, you know, I, I came from like a very bad place growing up and I, you know, built my life up and I went to school and I got a good job. So I have a lot to lose, you know, the fear of losing everything, you know, I think is, is what is keeping me sober and what makes me really motivated to not ever relapse and to not be one of those people that you know, fall off several times. Like I want one shot at this and I want this to stick. How liberating was it when she told you, looked you right in the eyes and said, Molly, you're an alcoholic. And what I mean by liberating, you just said the word, you accepted it. It's liberating when somebody says you're an alcoholic. And even if that person is you, I'm saying, Paul, I'm an alcoholic and it doesn't sting. It's not like you're hit by a rock and you're like, Ooh, you, you go, okay, now what? How'd that, what'd that feel mm -hmm. like? You know what? You said liberating and that's the right word. It felt like, you know, a ton of bricks had been lifted from my shoulders because I kept asking myself, especially over the last year, you know, as my disease had progressed to a really bad point, I kept asking myself, like, what's wrong with me? Why am I making these decisions? Like, what? why am I feeling so depressed all the time? You know, and it was finally, I finally had the answer all of those questions. And, and I said, you know, this is really scary to, to look at yourself in the mirror and say, like, I'm an alcoholic, like I have a disease, I have a problem, but now I can do something about it. And now I can change my life. And this is the first, you know, this is the first day of the rest of my life, if you will. It's amazing. You said that the bricks come off the shoulder, the weight comes off the shoulder. For me, when that happened, it was when I called my parents repeatedly and nobody answered. Well, finally, my dad answers. And I'm, I was going to tell them I need to go to rehab, but they were they were bearing or spreading the ashes of a very close family member. And I was like, you know what? I can wait for one day. Like they can have this night. And selfish Paul, I'm going to steal it tomorrow when I when I say I got to go to rehab. But what happened is I was basically telling myself and accepting it. All right, mom and dad, I'm an alcoholic. I'm ready to go to rehab. But sure thing, like next Monday morning or the next morning, like your Monday morning in your chair, I sat there. And something was different. I was looking mm -hmm. into my own eyes and being like, all right, I'm an alcoholic. The fog had lifted. I had surrendered. I was ready to go. But then I took my first step uphill. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, it's not an easy journey to say the least, but you're at least moving forward. And how's it going? You're at day 23. That was Friday. Walk me through the next weekend. How'd you make it through that weekend? 
Oh, man, weekends are really tough, you know, because that's I mean, for everybody, you know, that's when everybody goes out. And I live in a beach community that's known for partying. All of my friends are drinkers. Uh, most of them are pretty normal drinkers. But, you know, I'm getting invitations to go out to dinner to restaurants and to bars. And I didn't know if, you know, who I wanted to tell at first. And so it was a lot of staying at home, really. And, and just kind of avoiding those places. I have gone to out to eat a couple of times with friends and watched other people drink and had my club soda. But I know from my own recovery that I have to limit that, at least in the beginning. Uh, you know, for the first week after, I was feeling a lot of what my doctor has described as post-acute withdrawal symptoms or pause. So a lot of brain fog, some depression, like feeling low for no reason. But then, you know, week two, I, you know, that totally flipped and reversed and I felt, oh my God, I'm sleeping better and I'm like, <laughs> you know, I have more energy and I feel lighter and I'm starting to feel the, the residual effects of, I guess, my liver cleaning itself up a little bit, you know, and, and so I'm still, I'm still staying away from, I guess, triggering situations, but I'm trying to also tell myself um, that this isn't something that I'm taking away from my life. Like, you know, the reason I can't stick to a diet is because, well, I, I like to eat the bread and I'm going to eat the bread and the willpower and the white knuckling can get me to not eat the bread for a certain amount of time, but it's not going to stick in the long run. So if I, if I look at this as like, oh no, you can't drink alcohol. You want to drink it, but you can't drink it. Like it's never going to stick. So I'm just trying to see this as like, I'm giving myself the gift of better health and of happiness and this is actually something I'm adding to my life instead of taking away. Wow, that is incredible. I loved it how you almost reverse engineered the thinking on it. It's not something you're taking away. It's something that you're adding to your own life in terms of probably more longevity in life. You're going to live longer most likely. Mm -hmm. You're going to add happiness, better health, just, just a clear mindset, and you're going to be in a moment. I absolutely loved it. And Molly, I got to tell you right now, you are way ahead of the game is where I was when I quit drinking to, in 2010, like light years ahead of me. Because when I quit drinking, I just took one step forward of being a dry drunk for two and a half years. Almost. I was just a dry drunk. You're on a podcast at day 23. Like kudos to you. <laughs> Tell me how you got this far in 23 days. I want to know. You know, I was doing some pretty despicable and shameful things when I was in the depths of my disease, you know, not too long ago. And I had become this person that I never wanted to become. And I could, I felt ashamed and I could feel like, you know, my fiance was disappointed in me and my friends were disappointed in me. And I just realized like, I just want to feel, I want to go back to that person that I used to be. You know, I, I went through some trauma earlier, um, last year, actually, uh, last June, the day before my 30th birthday, I got some information that was really upsetting to me and continues to be very upsetting to me. And that's, that sort of triggered and a worsening of the disease um, and a worsening of the, the drug issues that I was having also concurrent with the alcohol. And I was using partying and drinking and drugging as a way to escape from feeling the things that I needed to feel. And so, you know, when I had that talk with the counselor and I started going to meetings and, you know, I just, I made a commitment to myself, like, you're gonna, you're gonna feel 
all the feelings like you're going to you're going to dig deep like you're going to really really go through this and do it 100% because your life is depending on it. And so I'm hoping really that this is like me creating a life that I don't want to escape from and some days, you know, are harder than others, but so far in 23 days like this might be the pink cloud talking but I I'm doing really great and I I don't want to drink. I don't want to go back to that, you know. So, I don't know. There's a lot of takeaways right there. I'm just going to comment on the last thing you said, the pink cloud. And I can only comment from firsthand experience. My pink cloud lasted like eight months. And the gentleman that I interviewed literally over an hour ago, his pink cloud lasted 10 days. And it's when that pink cloud pops and it'll become evident pretty quickly. It's when tools in your back pocket, like even doing this interview, the affirmations, Mm -hmm. like what you're talking about right now on this podcast is what's going to make you it's really when like your recovery starts it's like okay like you know the freshness of the sobriety is worn off like now let's this is when like the rubber hits the road and so enjoy the pink cloud it might never go away i don't know it's different for everybody but like i said you're so much farther ahead than i was in when i was at this step of the journey because you're on a podcast right now like you're already open to meeting with other people um, connecting with online communities and, and doing research. So I got to give you props. Now talk to me about relationships and how they've changed in 23 days. Are people hesitant? They're like, Ooh, this new Molly. I, I don't know about this girl or, or what, what, what's the uh, pulse from your friends? I have only told like my very, very close friends, you know, I'm sort of coming clean to people in stages my family was first my you know and my fiance obviously I mean he was first first and and then my very close friends and I think you know some of my more casual friends that I used to go out and do stuff with will be next but you know my family was so uh, I was scared. I was scared to tell them because, you know, I've always been the golden child in the family, type A, like straight A student, you know, s- achievements out the wazoo. And so, you know, to admit that, like, I'm actually this, have this other side of myself that you've never seen, you know, is really scary. But my mom just, she cried tears of joy. And she said to me, I have been worried about you for 10 years, you know, and in fact, my aunt, my aunt, when I called my aunt, she said, you know, your mom at Thanksgiving was telling me about how worried she was about you. And she was like, thank God, you know, there was no judgment. It was just like, you know, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. When it comes to my friends, you know, uh, my close friends have been super supportive and, you know, nobody's been skeptical. Uh, Everybody's been suggesting like, you know, alcohol-free activities, going on a hike, going to the beach, you know, and that's been great. I'm a little nervous sort of when all this newness weighs off, you know, how people are going to react when I'm not, you know, out closing down the bar with them. You know, that is something that I'm nervous about. I'm nervous to see how my friendships evolve, you know, what people sort of fade out of my life after this and how how I'm going to make new friends in sobriety through AA and through my group therapy and other things. So I'm, I guess, open to that journey. And I can only comment from experience what's going to happen moving forward is the best filter you could ever wish for (laughs) is friends that aren't really friends. They'll probably just fade away. And the real friends and the people you actually want to be surrounded with in life, they're not going to go anywhere. And it's really not something that they're like, okay, Molly, it's been four months. When is this whole non-drinking thing going to quit? They understand it, even if they're normal drinkers. I've been sober for almost a year and a half. 
and I'll show up you know, a couple minutes late to a dinner and there's a soda water with a lime splash of cranberry like I love it you know <laughs> waiting for me and and the, the, even if it's even with groups of people I don't know all that well and and occasionally people ask like hey how long's it been and like oh it's almost you know, it's been 14 months 15 months almost a year and a half and they don't get it but they're like oh that's great that's so awesome so I'm I'm happy for you and I'm excited to uh, see what's going to come down the pipeline and and how's it been with your fiance I'm I'm really curious because there's kind of a debate it's not a debate it's a discussion um, and I am curious is some people are like well if you're a recovering alcoholic it's you should be dating a, a non-drinker but your fiance he's a normal drinker shall we say like how has that been for you uh, it's actually been fine it's been great he's super supportive he had been really concerned about me as I said for a really long time and he's not a huge drinker. He would go out and, and be social, but he's the kind of guy that he'll literally only have a drink or two all night while I'm pounding, you know, 15, 16 drinks. So um, he's he basically, I, I think I've only seen him drink twice in the last 23 days because, you know, he's staying in with me a lot. He's really supporting and he won't drink. I, I think we, I went out to dinner um, in LA on Saturday night and we were with friends and I said, like, please drink, have a beer. If that's what you want to do, don't feel bad. And he was like, okay, because I wasn't going to have anything, you know. So he's he's really uh, in tune with what I need and, and really supportive. And I think, you know, he said to me that this will help him drink less too. So he's at least open to uh, reducing his consumption and, and taking drinking away from being the focus of our relationship. So... Uh, I, I think it'll be good. I don't think that he needs to completely abstain in order for me to, to abstain forever. But I'm, you know, I, I would imagine that in the long run, it'll probably be something that starts to fade away from his life. Sure. The filter I talk about is already in effect right now. Your fiance, if he really loves you, he's going to stick with you and want the best for you is, is, is what he's displaying right now. It's got to be encouraging, right? Absolutely. I mean, there is a little, there was fear, especially in the beginning, and maybe even it's still a little bit now where I'm like, well, I don't want you to think that I'm lame. You know, <laughs> like, we're not going out and doing the same fun things that we used to. And, and he's just like, no, I don't care what we do, you know, as long as we're together and you're healthy and you're happy. And I want that more than anything. So um, I feel fully supported. And what I've witnessed is sure there are there are less moments when you're on the dance club dance floor you know listening to wrecking ball at like 1 in the morning <laughs> those don't happen as frequently anymore in my life however there are days on like a tuesday at 11 15 a.m or a sunday in the morning when you're with your friends or your significant other that are just so much more incredible because you're not hung over like you're in the moment and those moments compiled together highly outweigh those few and fleeting moments at the dance club or drunk drunk moments at a bachelor party and things like that mm -hmm. absolutely you mentioned earlier that your mom had mentioned to your aunt that your mom was worried about you at thanksgiving i personally thought i was hiding it very well and we actually do a pretty good job of hiding it well However, you know, our loved ones know us the best and, and she was worried about you. Have you two chatted about that or, or kind of like said, hey, mom, I can understand the pain I put you in. And, and where's your relationship with your mom? 
Well, my mom lives in Ohio, so, you know, we don't get to see each other very often. And um, But we've been really close and we talk on the phone every other day. And it's been great since I, I told her, you know, what was going on. And um, it was almost like a relief to her in that initial conversation and I'll text her updates or she'll, she'll text me or call me and be like, how are things going? How are you feeling? And, you know, because she's my mom and my mom, like in the eighties, she was a bodybuilder. Like you wouldn't want to like, you know, she's kind of scary. Like (laughs) she beats dudes in arm wrestling and stuff. Like you wouldn't want (laughs) to, you wouldn't want to like be alone with her in a dark alley, (laughs) you know? So I've always had this like, you know, very respectful, Mm -hmm. reverent fear for my mother. My mom would kick my butt also, Molly. I get you. I was, you know, so worried about her judgment and what she was going to think about me. And instead of judgment, it was just, you know, she welcomed me with open arms and she's like, anything that you need, you know, I have your back a hundred percent. And, you know, I think that in the long run, that's going to make us um, even closer than we already are. Absolutely. And today or starting after this phone call, walk me through what your recovery is going to look like. What do you plan to do in sobriety? Well, I'm in this program, so I'm going to continue going to individual counseling sessions and group therapy, and I go to AA meetings. I listen to podcasts like yours. I, I Yours is the, the first one that I found, and I listen to them every single time I'm in the car because if I'm not able to make it to a meeting because of work or whatever, you know, that's my my reminder constantly. I feel like podcasts are so, and reading is so critical. So I have to read a little bit about it every day. I have to listen to podcasts every day and that's part of my ritual. But also, you know, in recovering from alcoholism, I feel like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm repairing my body and I'm repairing my mind and I'm repairing my spirit. So I have to, as part of recovery, take really good care of myself. So I'm doing a lot of yoga, a lot of meditation, hiking, spending time in nature, just I'm trying to eat really healthy. And I'm seeing that as all kind of being connected and and, an integral part of of getting better from this disease and and keeping me sober. Because, you know, I, I heard your podcast where you talked about relapse. You know, you're like, if I miss workouts or if I'm, you know, backsliding on the diet, like, you know, all these little things will, um, you know, eventually can, can lead to relapse. And so I, I'm trying to set up sort of a regiment for myself to keep myself, you know, sober and, and on that right track. I'll say it again. And I'm getting frustrated now, Molly. You are so much further along this curve. <laughs> Then I am, I, I mean, it was like day, I'd be like, okay, this day 945 since I tried to quit drinking, I guess I'll explore yoga. I mean, <laughs> you're on this thing already, like affirmations, you're reading podcasts, connecting, doing research, reading books. My plan is just like, all right, not drinking, I'm good. That plan didn't work out so hot. As far as the relapse thing, Molly, you got 23 days. I wouldn't even think about it. If it does happen, there's not a doubt in my mind because you are so much further along the curve. You're just going to get right back up and you're start over on day one again. It doesn't even matter. And heck, let's have you back on the podcast at day one. It doesn't matter at all. <laughs> Relapse is part of my story. It might not be part of yours, but if it does become part of yours, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You're going to get back up and keep moving forward. I mean, what's your thought about that? Well, I think that's really good for me to hear. And I think it's really good for, you know, probably your your other listeners to hear that, you know, just because something, you know, happens or whatever, it doesn't mean that you've ruined it, you know, that you can get back up. And I'm not planning to relapse at all. Like, 
And that might be the pink cloud talking, but I know at any point, you know, I can be knocked off of this cloud and, you know, something can trigger it. But I'm, I'm committed to this as a lifestyle and this is the way that I want to live the rest of my life. And so no matter what happens, I know that like this is, you know, this is my, my, what's guiding me. So I'm not, I'm not really worried about it in that way. Molly, after talking with countless alcoholics over the past year in my journey doing this podcast, if there's one character trait that all alcoholics possess, it's we are fighters. We are courageous fighters. Ironically, we suck at fighting alcohol. We just kind of have to give up on that one. <laughs> but we overcome some crazy adversity. It's, it's incredible. Adversity that people, non-drinkers, I think like, oh, they would just crumble. But alcoholics, we are fighters. And if you do relapse, again, you're going to get right back up and keep fighting. You're not going to be fighting the alcohol because, again, we're terrible at fighting the alcohol. We're like, I'm like, oh, and a thousand against alcohol. But like moving forward in life and putting one foot in front of the other after getting my ass kicked, I'm pretty good at that. Molly, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be great. Are you ready? Okay. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> All right, and Molly. Number one, what's your worst memory from drinking? There was a, uh, a weekend this past summer where I went on a bender the whole weekend. I parked my car in the wrong spot. I, I didn't drive drunk. This is before I started drinking. But I couldn't remember where it, it would, had been parked because I was so out of my mind the whole weekend. I ended up getting it towed. I had to pay like $600 to get it out of the impound. I um, stayed awake the whole weekend because I was also doing uh, drugs. And I didn't get any sleep. And then I had to go into work you know, that Monday with no sleep, you know, I'm, I'm exiled to the couch because I pissed off my fiance. I just had to pay $600 to get my car out of an impound. And the following day, I just was crying like a baby from the depression the whole day. And that was a particularly low moment for me. Yeah, that's tough. Next question, Molly, we've all heard of that aha moment. When was your oh shit moment when you realized I can't beat this drinking thing? It was really when I started sneaking vodka into my drinks while I was at home watching TV or when I'd be with family. That was sort of my moment where I was like, okay, like <laughs> this isn't just you're a party girl. Like this is you, you know, not being able to control what you're doing. Next question, Molly, what's your favorite resource in recovery? This could be other podcasts, book, AA, 12-step program. I got to say that it's your podcast. <laughs> Molly, you're too I, kind. Yeah, what other podcasts, I, though? You mentioned some other ones. What other podcasts do you listen to? I also listen to the Home Podcast, and uh, I've started listening to the Share Podcast as well. Nice. Next question, Molly. In regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Oh, gosh. I think it, it, it was listening to a podcast when they said to not think of it as something that you're depriving yourself of. You know, that sort of really resonated w- with me. And that's why I'm sort you know, trying to, to think of it as um, a gift to myself. But that was something that I heard on a podcast. And um, it really made a, a light bulb go off in my head. I love it. And next up, Molly, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in early recovery or thinking about quitting drinking? Um, the biggest thing I think is accountability. That's why I'm, you know, talking to you right now and 
you know, told my family right away and um, I'm thinking through my long-term strategy for being open and honest with everyone in my life about it. So accountability is, I think, the most important thing. But also just being really kind to yourself and taking really good care of yourself and getting on um, a sort of regiment as well. I love it. Molly, before we depart, give listeners your own customized You Might Be an Alcoholic gift line. Um, You might be an alcoholic if you pound beer as soon as you get up in the morning to cure the shakes. Yeah, I love it because I've been there and done it, but it's in the past. Molly, thank you so much for helping me stay sober. Thank you. Thank you. We've got a trip exclusively for the Recovery Elevator community. This is in Peru, October 6th to the 16th. We've got about four to five spots left. I think the deposit for the Inca Trail needs to be purchased within the next month, so you still got time. Go to recoveryelevator.com and learn more about this trip. Speaking of sweet, sober trips, let's hear from our sponsor, Sober Travel. In the spring of 2014, I went through the most exhausting trip of my life. What should have been an incredible South American backpacking trip turned into a nightmare because I relapsed and then I couldn't get sober. Let me tell you, being hungover on a 12-hour bus ride over the Andes is miserable. I knew I needed other sober people to travel with, and that's exactly what's going to happen. Wait for it. RE Sober Travel. Now I can travel to Europe, Asia, Australia, USA, and other amazing places with other sober travelers. I can expand my recovery network without risking my sobriety. For information on upcoming travel itineraries to places like Costa Rica, Mexico, Europe, and more, text Sober Travel No Space to 44222. Again, text Sober Travel without a space to 44222. Recovery Elevator, I want you to know before we depart that I'm excited. I'm excited that moving forward, we will have resources. What we will do with these resources is try to put this podcast in front of struggling alcoholics. People who aren't listening, people who aren't in the rooms of AA, people who are still struggling and drinking. Because I want for you guys what I have for myself. That suicide-proof room in Livingston, Montana that I spent the night in, that was terrible. I don't ever want to go back there. So about 92%, according to the survey monkey that I had a lot of people in the group fill out, were totally fine with us charging for the Recovery Elevator exclusive community. A small percentage said, I'm not going to pay, but thank you. I've had a great time in the group. Best of luck. Then there were a couple of people that didn't like it and they kind of stirred the pot. What I did a poor job of communicating was the big picture. This podcast is not about me. This podcast is not about the people already in the Recovery Elevator Facebook group. It's not even about the people that are going to make the transition into the paid group. It's about the person who still wakes up sick and tired and says, I got to quit this shit. What the hell is wrong with me? Am I the only person in this entire world with a drinking problem? That is who we're trying to reach. Recovery Elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.